Would you pray with me? Father, um, delighted in the opportunity to gather with others and to sing about Jesus and how he has loved us, how he died for us. Um, we have a special week ahead of us, God, with Good Friday service coming and coming to your table to take communion. And we pray that uh, that evening together would also help us to prepare for Easter. And we pray that uh, this morning, God, you would speak to us, continue to shape us and mold us. Uh, we've been talking in this series about some pretty difficult things, actually, pretty challenging things. And we do that again this morning and, and uh, just offer ourselves to you. God, speak to us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So as I said, we've been in a series called The Power of a Word. And each week we've talked about kind of one word life changers. If we'll take the word and, and put it into practice and use it, it can change who we are. And that's kind of the goal. Uh, we want to prepare ourselves for Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. We hope you'll be with us at Easter. Uh, so far in this series, we've talked about several words. The first one was no. The fact that we need to carve out certain things from our lives. Our lives get busy, they get full, and we need to figure out with God's wisdom what to say no to. Um, so that we can hear from him and have space in our lives for him. Then we talked about the word yes. We talked about all the promises are yes to us in Christ Jesus. And that has all kinds of implications. That means God means to bless us in our lives. And, and then he wants us to turn around and bless others. And we, we talked about that. And then last week was a difficult week because we talked about the word sorry, uh, the importance for us to take a pretty sober look at ourselves and realize we're not who we should be. Uh, we all have fractures, cracks, you know, there's some ugliness in us. And, uh, and what we need to do with that is just honestly bring it to God and, and seek transformation, have him work in our lives. Sometimes we even need to confess our sins to each other. We talked about that. Sometimes that's the only way to break free of certain sins that have us in their grip. And, and this week, I wish I could say is light and fluffy, but it isn't. Uh, we're going to talk about a word that can honestly bring enormous freedom and enormous joy to uh, people, but it's a very countercultural word, and it's a very countercultural thing we're going to talk about this morning. Let me kind of explain. You know, you can do life, in fact, you do do life in one of two ways. One of the ways is kind of like this. You know, you, it's a clenched fist, a grabbing, uh, taking, uh, holding on, like kind of with a death grip, you know. There's stuff that I put my security in. There's things that I want and I'm going to grab it and I'm going to hold on to it as tightly as I possibly can. You can do life that way. The other way to do life is kind of this way. It's kind of the open-handed kind of way. That, this is really saying to God, God, whatever comes into my life, I'm going to hold it loosely. I'm not going to put my security in it or my trust in it. I'm going to recognize it as a gift from you. And I'll easily share it. I'll, I'll use it. Uh, I need some of it myself, you know, but Lord, I recognize it comes from you. And so our options really are this or they're this in life. Uh, the word that's behind this kind of open-handed way of living, the word I want to share with you this morning is the word enough. Why don't you say that with me? Enough. Yeah. I don't like saying it either. Um, this is actually saying, God, you know, I'm going to trust you to give me enough. 
You are a God of abundance. That is the God of the Bible. He's not lacking for resources, not in any way, shape, or form. Uh, He is a generous God. And so I am going to trust you to provide for me. I don't have to do this. I don't have to grab. I don't have to take. I I don't have to hold on to stuff. I'm able to trust you, Lord, to, to give me enough. And the truth is, many people, as they go through life, they go through it this way. They go through it as takers, grabbers, you know, holder, honors, or... That's not, that doesn't work, but, you know, get the idea. Now, the truth about me uh, is that I have a taker inside of me. And I think the truth about you is you have a taker, a grabber, you know, a Caesar inside of you as well. I don't want to be that. I know better than to be that. Uh, what I really want to do is be, I want to be a generous person. I want to be like God is toward me. I want to live life this way, kind of open-handedly. I want to be able to say enough. I have enough. I don't need more to be happy. I don't need more to be secure. I don't need more in order to be a generous person. In fact, the inability that we have in our culture to say enough is kind of rampant. We have a problem with this word or with believing it. Um, And not being able to recognize when you have enough or be able to say enough can actually be fatal. Um, One silly example, how many of you ever ever had a goldfish and you dump too much food in the bowl, what did that fish do? See, goldfish don't have an ability to say enough. Oh, I'm quite satiated. I, I don't need to eat more. No, the goldfish will just keep eating and eating and eating itself to death. Now, I found out there are other creatures that do this as well. Did you know pet turtles? How many of you ever had a pet turtle? Okay, you do the same thing. You put too much food in the little pet turtle cage, bowl, what have you, That pet turtle does not know when to say enough, and it can eat itself to death. I found out that bunnies can do this. Um, Bunnies, if you just keep putting food, especially bunny pellets, which are highly uh, fattening and nutritious, I guess, for bunnies. I'm not an expert on bunnies, so I don't want any emails on bunnies, okay? But but I'm told that if you just keep putting bunny pellets in front of that, but it'll keep eating. It'll get enormous until it just literally dies from just too much intake. Uh, I'm told that goats, certain goats will do this. Now, I do know that goats will eat anything. Holly had a goat when I first started dating her. That's really why I started dating her. <laughs> Not true. But uh, she did have a goat, and this goat one time got in and, and it ate an, an entire bowl of rising dough. It had yeast in it. Yeah. It didn't just eat a couple bites. You know, ate all of it, all of it. This goat is laying out in the yard, <laughs> you know, it's, as, the, as the yeast and everything, as it's all rising, they thought it was going to die. Certain goats, though, will just keep eating and keep eating until they die. Turns out, though, uh, that it's not just goldfish and turtles and bunnies and goats that have trouble with this very thing, trouble saying the word enough or knowing that it's time to stop. Uh, this true story, there's a Stanford researcher who's done uh, quite famous research. He asked people in France, people in the city of Paris to be specific, when do you know you've had enough to eat? And the number one answer that Parisians gave to this was, when I'm full. When I'm full, I stop eating. I say enough. They asked people in America, specifically Chicago, the same question. Yeah. And, you know, when do you know you've had enough to eat? And they got a very different answer. Uh, The first answer, the number one answer was, well, I know I've had enough to eat when all the food is gone. 
kind of a goldfish, <laughs> you know, same kind of a thing. When my plate is clean and there's no more food to be gotten, that's when I know I've had enough to eat. The second uh, most uh, given answer there in Chicago was when the television show is over that I'm watching, that's when I know I've had enough to eat. So I hope they're not watching a movie, but anyway. <laughs> now, there were also some experiments that they did along with that, that survey that they took and uh, this had to do with bowls of soup, pretty funny. They, it's, this has become quite famous. It's called the bottomless bowl of soup. What they did is they had bowls that were attached to the table and uh, people would sit down to eat and they were told you can't move the bowl. You know, the bowl's actually secured to the table. And uh, some of the bowls were uh, fed from underneath the table so that the soup was always replenished as you ate it, right? And others were not. Well, the ones that had the miraculously filling bowl of soup, the ones that had that ate, generally speaking, twice as much as those that did not have the miraculously filling bowl of soup. All to say, they did that not because they were more hungry. They did that not because they needed it. But they did that just because they didn't really know when to push away and say enough. More just kept coming, so I'm going to eat more, you see. And not saying enough when it comes to Food, of course, can be a very dangerous thing. Not, again, just for bunnies or goldfish or turtles or goats, but even for us. I mean, all kinds of diseases are related to what we eat and eating too much. Diabetes and obesity, cholesterol, heart disease, all kinds of things. Um, not saying enough when it comes to things like food can be deadly, but it can also be quite dangerous and deadly to us, spiritually speaking. When we don't say enough to things like stuff or possessions or money, that can actually be very detrimental to our health as well. Now, something that's interesting, I've mentioned this before, but when surveys have been taken, understand 100% of people surveyed consider themselves to be generous. I mean, in other words, nobody, when you ask them, the, are you a generous person, would say, no, I'm, I'm really not generous. Everybody considers themselves to be generous. Nobody says, I want to be a, a taker, a grabber. You know, I want to live life this way with a closed fist around the things I think I've got to have to be happy. But statistically, statistically, the proof, proof around this, or the, the uh, truth around this is, is pretty sobering. Uh, the state-of-the-art study on generosity in the United States, people in the United States, has been written up in a book called American Generosity. And uh, just, just finished reading this not long ago. In this book, it says that 84% of Americans give away somewhere between 0 and 1% of their annual income. 84% of Americans give away somewhere between 0 and 1% of their income annually. Now, that's, of course, millions and millions of people who have way more than enough in this land that God has given, where he's given us so much to enjoy. And the irony is that we actually, most of us, do very little with it, other than, other than grasp it, hold on to it, and keep it for ourselves. Now, interestingly, too, another statistic is that 77 or 78 percent, depends on which survey you look at, 77, 78 percent of Americans claim that they are followers of Jesus, claim that they are Christians. And, uh, and only 3% of Americans, only 3% give away 10% of their income. That's what the Bible calls a tithe. And you kind of mix these statistics together, and it's, it's, it's a little bit alarming. If you know much about the Bible, you know that God established this practice with Israel, the nation of Israel, called tithing, which was them giving away 10% of uh, what they uh, would take in in a given year. 
Uh, God wanted the Israelites uh, to be able to express trust back to him. And in very practical ways, trust him day to day to day and season to season to season. He wanted them to be able to say, God, give me enough or give me this day my daily bread. And then as an expression of trust in him that he would do that and as an expression of gratitude for his generosity, they would give back 10% of whatever God brought into their lives. They would give that right back to him. Now, again, kind of taking one of those statistics I gave you a moment ago and turning it around, 97% of people who live in this country of ours, 97% do not give away 10% of their income. Uh, and this is, of course, people who have way more than just enough by any standard, previous standard. Um, now, I, I would just right up front, I'll just say, if that's you, I, I, I hope you'll rethink that. I, I hope you'll think about this picture that, you know, the, the grasping, taking, got to hold on to this way of life versus a more open-handed, and I would argue much more joyful uh, and joy-filled way of life. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. There's a, there's a reason we end up living like this. There really is. We kind of learn to live like this in our culture. Um, for all of us, there's whatever amount of money you currently have, that would be your current income, and whatever stuff you have accumulated, that, that, there's that amount, the amount we have. And then there's another amount, and that's the amount that we want, right? The amount that we think would be enough. Interestingly, that amount is always more than we currently have for everybody. Every survey, all research done on this, we all think we have not quite enough, you see. And the amount between what I have and what I think is enough is the discontentment zone. And people in our country, research demonstrates, live with a lot of discontentment around this issue. Um, you know, we think that we don't have enough right now. If I just had a little more, some might say if I just had a lot more, uh, then I think I could be content. Then I think I would have enough. Research says, no, that's not really who we are. It's not really the sober truth about us. Honestly, most of us spend our whole lives long working harder, uh, working longer, running faster, acquiring more to raise the level of what we have up to what we think would make us content, which would be then enough. But enough is a pretty elusive concept turns out. Turns out that what I thought was enough really never is enough. Enough ends up always being just, just outside my, my reach, my grasp, if you will. And so I always am living in this discontentment zone. And people, again, go around their whole life, life long thinking, man, if I just had a little more stuff, a little more money, uh, maybe a little larger home, maybe slightly newer or better cars, um, may be able to take nicer vacations. I'm not there yet, but I'll get there someday, and then I will have enough. And that enough turns out to be a mist, a figment of our imagination, because almost nobody says, yes, I have enough. So you can see, uh, that's kind of who we are in America. And so for somebody to actually declare and mean it, for somebody to actually be able to say, you know, I, I have enough, that would be quite revolutionary. In fact, that would be extremely counter-cultural. Not many people do it. But it turns out that those who do learn to do this, 
they discover that that is in fact a road to incredible amounts of freedom and joy and satisfaction and purpose. What I want to do this morning with you is look at a story of a guy who actually discovers that he has enough. And it's a pretty revolutionary story. So if you got a Bible, open them up with me to Luke chapter 19. Uh, in Luke chapter 19, we read these words. Verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Understatement, understatement right there. Uh, and from just these few words that we've read so far, we already know a fair amount about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus understood money. Zacchaeus was good with money. Zacchaeus was highly motivated around this thing of money. And we know this because Israel at this point in time occupied, uh, was occupied by Rome. And Rome had learned, unlike some other countries, that when they occupied a territory, they didn't pick all the people up and exile them to some other place. In fact, they left almost all of them in place, wanted them to thrive economically, and then they would tax the heck out of them. Kind of like other countries we know. Um, this way, Rome then, through the taxation process, could themselves become very wealthy because of the prosperity of these territories that they would, they would conquer. Now, this all meant, of course, that they would need a, a few special folks to serve as tax collectors, people who knew where the wealth was. That was important if you were going to be a tax collector. A tax collector would be somebody in Israel who could say, you know what, this guy over here is a 50 sheep person. This guy over here is a 500 sheep person. This one has 40 camels. This one has 400. This one has 100 acres. This one has 1,000 acres. He knew who had the money, and he knew who it was that made things happen. He knew how to get his hands on their money. And people in Israel, because of this, hated, as you can well imagine, hated tax collectors because they were in collusion with the Romans, their oppressors. If I'm a very rich Israelite, I go to a guy like Zacharias and I say, Zacharias, uh, you know, man, I'd like, could we talk? Uh, is there any way, you know, I, I could keep you from letting Rome know just how wealthy I am? And Zacharias, a chief tax collector, would say, well, you know, if you want me to do that, uh, what's that worth to you? And there the conversation would begin. Tax collectors were notorious for taking bribes. They were notorious for making deals. They were notorious for being rich, filthy rich. That was Zac Zacchaeus's game right there. Uh, and that's why people hated him. To be a tax collector meant that uh, he had already given up on things like relationships, things like friendships, things like really developing community. No. No, not for Zacchaeus. Nobody wanted to be his friend. But the, the payoff for him was that he was rich. He had more than enough. And he really uh, was good at this game. So good that he was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector. Now, implicit in the story is that, that over time, something goes wrong with this picture. Um, Zacchaeus is not happy. Uh, Zacchaeus, uh, maybe he's experiencing some kind of emptiness inside, a hunger inside. We're not told explicitly. But he suddenly becomes very interested in getting a glimpse at and getting a, uh, the opportunity to connect with this itinerant rabbi that he's heard about named Jesus. 
Uh, you would never expect a chief tax collector um, to be interested in getting, you know, a spiritual teacher, a spiritual rabbi who was traveling around in the area. But, but, in the area. but, but this, you know, Zacchaeus is. He wants to get to know this Jesus. We read this in verse 3. He says, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, you'll notice in this story, there's lots of kind of little interesting details uh, kind of uh, peppered into this story. For example, he didn't just climb a tree. He climbed a sycamore fig tree. Uh, scholars and commentators will tell us that, you know, Luke is the only one who tells this story in all the Gospels. And they will tell us that Luke almost certainly got this information right from the mouth of Zacchaeus because of these little details, things that others probably wouldn't have noticed or would not have known. Uh, for example, too, in the Middle East, uh, Eastern world, rich, powerful guys never ran. We've talked about this before when we studied the prodigal son. These men wore robes and to run, you know, you got to hike up the robe and you're doing one of these kind of deals. Not very dignified. And, uh, and so rich people, you didn't usually see them running. Zacchaeus runs, we're told. Uh, because he wants to see Jesus that badly. He's willing to run. He runs ahead of the crowd. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, a rich, powerful guy also didn't climb trees, especially in robes uh, or in public. And he would likely get mocked for this if people saw him doing this. But remember, he runs ahead of the crowd, finds the sycamore tree uh, along the path where he knows Jesus is going to be coming, and he climbs up this tree, maybe, maybe even to not be noticed, hoping that people just you know, all paying attention, focusing on Jesus, wouldn't even notice there's a guy up in the sycamore fig tree. He desperately wants to see Jesus. Now, uh, we're told in the story, too, that Zacchaeus is short. That's an interesting thing to comment on, really. Uh, there's an old kid's song. Holly used to sing it to our kids. Some of you know it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Yeah, nobody likes being a wee little man. Uh, I hate working around Tim Rehnquist for this very reason, um, because when I'm around Tim, I feel like a wee little man. Um, maybe that's part of why Zacchaeus was so drawn to money. We don't know. But it could have been, because money kind of makes you feel big, doesn't it? Uh, lots of money makes you feel like you're a somebody. People tend to think you're a somebody. Money will make people think you're very important. Uh, it's interesting. All this is kind of... For Zacchaeus, it seems like it's wearing off for him, like it always does, I might add. Um, if your security and your hope and your identity is all rooted and grounded in money, I'll make a promise to you. That won't do it for you forever. Might do it for you right now, but that isn't going to do it for you forever. You will get to the end of that dead-end road. Now, for Zacchaeus, an amazing thing happens. Zacchaeus is up in a tree. You got to picture it, right? And now he is going to be able to see Jesus. And then Jesus does something that nobody saw coming. Nobody. It says this. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now everybody sees Zacchaeus, right? Uh, Zacchaeus was not counting on this, I'm sure. And uh, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. And people are saying, really? Really, Jesus? You're going to stay 
at this guy's, this guy's home. I mean, with all the good folks here in Jericho, local rabbis, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, scribes, devout people living in Jericho, you choose this guy to go to his house, a tax collector, really? And the thing about Jesus, this is actually a very encouraging piece of this story, uh, wonderful news. You see, it doesn't really matter what your or my financial history is. It really doesn't. Uh, maybe your finances are a train wreck, or maybe you've been through a bankruptcy, or you feel like a failure financially, or maybe you've even been dishonest in your finances, or you've been greedy, or you've cheated, or you've embezzled, or maybe you've even been in prison because of your finances. None of that actually is a barrier to Jesus coming to your house you know, today. Um, Jesus loves bringing grace to anyone who's interested in grace, to anyone who wants to have that conversation. And the strangest thing happens in this interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus. Zacchaeus, uh, who must have been shocked at this point, uh, maybe even a little embarrassed, climbs down the tree, obviously, and I'm just guessing his response is, really, Jesus? I mean, you, you would come to my house? You know, please do. You know, let, let me host you. He's just got to be shocked at this. And, and, but so is everybody else. In fact, if we keep reading, it says that all the people saw this and began to mutter. Uh, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner, they say. Now, we know just how much this bothered everyone. Very often in the Bible and the gospel accounts, we find Jesus doing things that, that bothered people, certain groups of people. The Sadducees would be bothered. The Pharisees would be bothered. Teachers of the law would be bothered. This is the only time in the New Testament that we're told all the people muttered. Everybody in Jericho is bothered by this because they really hated tax collectors. And they thought everybody should hate tax collectors. But Jesus goes to the home of Zacchaeus I, I, this is one of those many stories in the Bible. I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I would love to have heard the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. We don't know really many of the details, only uh, that what was said massively impacted Zacchaeus, literally turned his life a 180. Uh, it, it changed his thinking forever. I, I'm assuming things got said or talked about that had just never been said or Zacchaeus had never talked about with anyone. It makes me wonder if Jesus wasn't saying stuff like, Zacchaeus, you know, you're, uh, your whole life long, you have been a money guy. You're a good at money guy. Um, and you've got lots of money. Zacchaeus, you love money. But is it getting you what you really want? Zacchaeus, you've got a lot of stuff. I'm looking around. I see great transportation here. I mean, I see donkeys. That's kind of at the Prius level. In entry level transportation. But I'm seeing camels. That's your ATV, all terrain vehicle. Camels can go anywhere, they can go a long ways. I'm seeing some sports cars. Those would be horses. You got some beautiful horses, Zacchaeus. And I, I even see a carriage over there. That's your retirement transportation, you know, that kind of a thing. But tell me something how many modes of transportation do you need? Is that doing it for you? You got great clothes, Zacchaeus. Wow. I mean, I'm just noticing the 
clothes you're wearing, the threads are beautiful, silk, gorgeous, gorgeous robes, and I'm just betting you got closets full. Is that still doing it for you? You know, you used to live in a tent once upon a time, Zacchaeus. Can you even remember living in a tent? But you don't live in a tent anymore. You, you had that other place, that huge home, and you got rid of that. You bought some riverfront property on the Jordan, built the biggest, nicest, most luxurious home in the whole city of Jericho. How's that working for you right now? Is that satisfying your soul? Truth is, Zacchaeus, you know, you can be satisfied with your money, but you cannot be satisfied in your money. Satisfaction comes only in knowing and loving and doing life with the Father, Zacchaeus. You know, the Father is the one who gives meaning to life and gives us joy and gives us contentment. They're his gifts. Zacchaeus, why don't you consider surrendering yourself and your stuff and your time and your resources and your skills? Why don't you consider surrendering all of that to me and come follow me, Zacchaeus, and learn to live with me and learn to do life like me, Zacchaeus. Learn to use what resources the Father gives you to do unbelievable things in advancing his kingdom. Learn to love and to feed and to help the hungry, the needy, and the poor. Learn to care for people the way the Father cares for you, Zacchaeus. If you did that, people would bless you instead of curse you. <laughs> well, we don't really know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. Um, not really. What we do know is that what he said had a powerful impact on Zacchaeus, an amazing impact. Um, I'm guessing Zacchaeus is listening to Jesus sitting there at dinner and his heart in his chest is pounding, pounding, pounding. And there's a very dramatic moment in the story. It's in Luke 19, 8. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up. Okay, now the host stands and he's going to say something. That wasn't too unusual. At a formal banquet, a formal dinner like this, often the host would stand up and thank his guests for being there and recognize different guests and then especially recognize the guest of honor. But Zacchaeus, when he stands up, he doesn't address any of the people. In fact, it says he talks to Jesus and apparently only Jesus. It's not the typical after-dinner speech. Um, this is what he says. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, that's a very interesting phrase. It's, it's sort of like he's listening, he's learning. The Spirit of God is really challenging him. And it's almost like a surrender. Look, Lord, I've been listening to what you've been saying. And look what he goes on to say. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of everything, pause. He's cheated everybody out of everything. Okay, that, this is the chief tax collector we're talking about. He says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Guaranteed. Everybody at that dinner, everybody listening is absolutely staggered at this point. They're stunned. And everybody's doing the math, trying to figure out what their tax refund is going to be. <laughs> yeah. 
And Mrs. Zacchaeus is going, really? Shouldn't we have talked about this, you know? The children are thinking, does this mean I'm not going to get a camel? You know, that's kind of what they're thinking. Uh, But Zacchaeus, understand, is so captivated by the possibility of doing life differently, doing it with Jesus, using his stuff to accomplish different things instead of just grasping it and holding it and thinking, I need just a little more. And he starts to recalculate in his head. And he recalculates everything now in light of the kingdom of Jesus. It's a different way of looking at everything, frankly. And he says, you know, here's what I have and what I've been holding on to. And truthfully, I have more than enough and have had for a long, long time. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start living generously, he says. And he puts a stake in the ground. Pretty remarkable. He declares this publicly for everybody to hear. He says, I'm going to give away half my stuff, 50% of my stuff to the poor. He's saying, I believe that 50% of what I have with God is worth more and more valuable than having 100% of what I have and doing life without him. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I need to make some things right too because I've certainly not been doing things right. And I'll pay back every one I've cheated. And I'm guessing that is a long list of people for Zacchaeus. And then Jesus speaks, and he doesn't do the the typical um, guest of honor after dinner speech either. What he says is very surprising. He doesn't talk about the nice meal and the gracious host and hostess and all that kind of stuff. He looks at Zacchaeus, and this is a very powerful moment. Let me explain. He says to Jesus said to him, he said, today salvation has come to this house because this man, this tax collector too, is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. I mean, it's like Jesus is underlining the fact that Zacchaeus for years now has been lost off in the weeds somewhere, lost in his stuff, lost in living life this way. And it's brought him to a pretty desperate place, a pretty unhappy, unfulfilling, unpurposeful place. And uh, Zacchaeus has not been able to say enough. He always needed just a little more. And in all of that, he had lost his identity. He had lost his purpose. He had lost his meaning, his significance. He had certainly lost his sense of joy. And then Jesus comes to visit. And what Jesus says is quite significant. I'm sure Zacchaeus would remember this until the very day he died. Uh, If you were an Israelite man living in this time uh, that Zacchaeus is living, about the greatest phrase that could be used to describe you would uh, have somebody call you a son of Abraham. That means you're one of the covenant people. You got the promises of God to hold on to. You have this relationship with God that only the nation of Israel has. Abraham is the one, of course, who started the nation of Israel. And Zacchaeus has been a corrupt tax collector now, colluding with Rome for who knows how many years. Nobody has called him a son of Abraham for a long, long time. They've called him a son of other things, but not a son of Abraham. Abraham... Zacchaeus is going to remember this. 
And he can't believe that Jesus graciously calls him a son of Abraham, gives him a new identity, one he had completely and utterly lost. And Jesus says today, salvation has come to this house. And what he means is not that Zacchaeus suddenly got religion, not that Zacchaeus somehow bought his way into heaven or into Jesus' kingdom, none of that. Heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, is not for sale, can't be bought. It's always a gift of grace, always a gift of grace. I mean, remember, Jesus stopped by that tree way before Zacchaeus had done anything. And, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm, I'm going to your house for dinner. And uh, this word salvation is interesting. It's translated in the New Testament in different ways, different places. Sometimes it's translated healing. Sometimes it's translated deliverance. And it means something way, way more than just, you know, if you believe the right things, uh, you get to go to the pleasure factory when you die. That's not at all what Jesus is saying when he says salvation, deliverance, healing has come to this house. What it means for Zacchaeus is that the disease of more that has been clogging his arteries and corroding his soul for decades, that disease is starting to be healed. That's what Jesus is talking about. Real transformation has begun. And uh, Zacchaeus' inability to say enough is starting to change. And friends, let me just say, there are really smart people who tell us all the time that life is about getting more. They tell us that our identity is all wrapped up in getting more. They tell us that our happiness is all entirely contingent on us getting more. And I want to tell you, that is not true. In fact, that is a God-damned lie. Do you get my drift? Jesus went to the cross to pay for that lie. To be damned so that that lie, that untruth, be put to rest. I was thinking about this, getting ready for this message. Holly and I have been married for a lot of years, 40 plus years. And in that 40 years, <laughs> yeah, uh, we've, uh, are you thinking we won't have many more to go? Is that, <laughs> you know, we've lived in some different places. When we, when we first got married, we had this little apartment, tiny little one bedroom, one bath uh, apartment. And actually the kitchen um, they, it was in a hallway, so it was a galley kitchen. I mean, and when Holly was cooking in there, you know, um, I'd have to, you know, excuse me, honey, I'd have to walk by, you know, and uh, that's why I wasn't able to do dishes ever. Um, <laughs> but a tiny, tiny, tiny little apartment, super, super tiny. And then uh, we left there. Uh, I, was, I was doing uh, grad school there, and then we went to South Florida uh, where I began uh, working on the staff of a church, and we had another tiny one-bedroom uh, one bath, tiny little galley kitchen apartment again, uh, 800 square feet or 700, I don't even know, it was super tiny. Um, our bed, we had a, we had a uh, queen size water bed and the, the queen size water bed literally, I mean, filled up the bedroom. You could, I could get out of the bed on my side, take a couple steps and I was in the bathroom. You know, that was the, it was just a tiny little place. Uh, from there, we moved into a two bedroom upstairs, downstairs condominium. We thought we'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, this, this had, actually had a kitchen. 
And it had a little living room and, and a little dining room right next to it and so on. It was unbelievable. Had our first child, had Ian there uh, when we were living in that condo. Then um, we actually bought a home, our first home. as a fixer-upper, and, and that was very, very appropriate for us. We just dove into you know, trying to improve that thing, lived there a few years, and then we moved here to Denver. And when we moved here to Denver, uh, we bought a, a brand-new home. It was like, wow. And this home had four bedrooms, and we finished the basement. It was palatial, okay? It was totally palatial for us. We thought, wow, this is incredible. Lived in that home for 23 years and raised our family there. Then we moved into the home we're in now, which is only a little bit smaller uh, than that other home that we had. And uh, we, of course, love our home, love where we're living. But I was thinking in all this, of all those different places that we lived, where do you think we were the happiest? Do you think there was any correlation whatsoever between how many square feet we had and how many moments of joy we experienced? I'll I'll tell you what I know you already know. There's no correlation at all. No correlation whatsoever between the size of a home and how much joy we had. Some of our happiest moments were back in the smallest places that we rented. Uh, And here's the thing. Here's the thing about the word enough. You see, enough is not a level of wealth that you achieve. It's a statement of trust that you declare. That's what enough is. Um, The prophet Isaiah writes in in Isaiah 58 these words, and they're they're remarkable words. Um, He's writing to the nation of Israel, of course, who have trouble believing the very things that we're talking about right now. They, They really wrestle with this. But this is what God says to them through the prophet Isaiah. He says, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, what that's really saying is not, not that you make every poor person rich. It's just saying, open your eyes, look around, you see the need, engage in meeting the needs to the ability that you have to do that. that that's really what the prophets are getting at here. If, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, if you live like you really are a member of my kingdom, he says, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always and will satisfy your needs. Now, notice he doesn't say will gratify your every desire. Here's the problem with our desires. Our desires are tempered by and controlled largely by the sin that is in us. And so our desires are never satisfied. That's why we can't really say enough because we never really believe we've got quite enough. But the promise of God is, is that he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. That's talking about uh, bodily health. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And here's the thing, you and I, you know, we have to decide whether we believe stuff like that or not. We have to decide. Zacchaeus says this. He says, I believe that living with 50% of what I had with God is better than living with 100% of what I had, but with God really not in it at all. That's what he said. That's what he did. And so the question that I think we're all confronted with is, you know, will we ever learn to say enough? like Zacchaeus. You know, when you observe, his decision literally changed his life. And I'm going to just guess here. I don't know for sure, but I'm also guessing it changed the lives of everybody around him. I bet Jericho was different. You see, the fact is, we either do life this way, 
clenched fist. I need more. I need just a little more. I don't have enough. I've got to hold on to what I got because I need every little bit of what I've got. Or we live life like this, open-handed. And I would say to you, Jesus lived this way. In fact, I would say Jesus lived this way, hands open, pinned to a cross for you and me. There wasn't, point is, there wasn't anything he wouldn't sacrifice for you and me. Not a thing. And we're confronted with the question, you know, do, do you want to follow Jesus? In this case, with your finance, do you want to live generously the way Jesus lives? And I would just say, if you don't, you need to know you're missing out. You're missing out on the purpose and the meaning and the significance and the joy that comes with being a fully participating person in the kingdom with all you have and all you are and all your gifts and abilities. So, um, And I would just say, I hope that what happened uh, to little Zacchaeus can happen for you. I hope that you'll wrestle with this story and think about putting a stake in the ground, whatever that means for you, and be able to say, God, I want to be like you. I want to be generous. I want the evidence of the reality of Jesus living in me to even be clear in my stuff. I want to be a generous person. I'm going to trust that less is more if you're in it. Now, that's the word for this morning. The word is enough. And it's a great word. It's a very, very, very countercultural word. But it's a liberating word if you use it. It really is. As we wrestle with and prepare to come to next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I'll let you wrestle with that. Let's pray. I would just encourage you to talk about God about this. If he was saying anything to you, then listen to him. Wrestle with it. Talk to him about it. And uh, tell him whatever you need to tell him. God, I, I feel like uh, I've messed up financially. I feel like I need a different perspective. I have to admit that even talking about giving anything away is very, very scary to me. But I want to follow Jesus. And I do want to learn to trust you more. So help me. I want to live a life that has purpose to it and meaning and significance and joy and not a life that's just about me. Lord, would you help free me from the disease of more and teach me to say enough. So Lord, I give you my life and I give you my money and I give you my stuff and and I say use it and use me, Lord. Help me steward what you have given me well. And let me do this for the sake and for the glory of Jesus, my King. Amen.